And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1. Over the next three Sundays, as you've heard, we are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. This is indeed the true meaning of Christmas. You know, because of the popularity of Christmas in our culture, so much comes to mind when we think of Christmas. Uh, So much comes to mind when we add the word Christmas to things like Christmas cookies and Christmas movies and Christmas songs and Christmas decorations and Christmas traditions, much of which have nothing to do with Jesus. I have yet to see the slice and bakes with Jesus on them. But we all know Christmas related to these things. And it's a holiday, it's a season. You know, one of the songs tells us it's the most wonderful time of the year, which actually just recently I've been thinking, I wonder what's the the most horrible time of the year. It's starting to, it raises the question for me. Throughout the scripture, though, the birth of Jesus is what it's all about. And it's, it's almost like because we're so much inundated with Christmas everything that is not about Jesus, this is our little time each Sunday to remind ourselves, to stir one another up, to be reminded of who He is and why He came. You see, Jesus, His birth, it's called the Incarnation. That's just a fancy word for God becoming man, taking on flesh. So He was the eternal God, existing with the Father from all eternity, and at a point in time, He became man. He entered a lineage, a human lineage of sinners in order to save sinners. And this is presented to us throughout the Scriptures as a humble step. A humble step. So over the next three weeks, that's a part of the theme of why we're looking at the humble Christ. We're going to look today at His humble heritage. We're going to look next Sunday at Him taking that step of becoming man. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the first Christmas as a humble night. And really, the purpose of seeing Christ in His humility, church, is to make us more humble as a result. Which is one of the intentions of Christmas. is isn't just all the celebrations. It's to affect us, to lead us to worship, and to humble us before the Lord. So, if you have your Bible open... To Matthew chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 1 about this humble heritage. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. 
And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray. Ask God for help this morning. Oh Lord, we sang in the song this morning, Come and see what God has done. Lord, it is marvelous. And we want it to be ever increasingly marvelous in our eyes that you are a God, Lord, who is not treating us as our sins deserve. And so I do pray you would thrill us, lead us to worship, lead us to a greater degree of humility this Christmas. Lord, that's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for us as a church that we would be humbled, beholding the humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I pray this would affect our relationships. Lord, we just give you our family relationships. We give you our marriages. We give you before you, Lord, dating relationships. Lord, we, we want our relationships to be so affected by the knowledge of God and by, Lord, you entering the world to save us. Lord, I pray you would build up our marriages by your grace. Lord, would you help us as husbands to love and sacrifice and lead our wives? Would you help wives to submit to and to respect and to love their husbands? Would you help us, Lord, to pour out our lives in service for one another, outdo one another in showing honor? Lord, that our friendships would not just be things we talk about that we have in common, but things, Lord, where we're sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. 
that were both voices of encouragement, but voices of exhortation, exhorting one another, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Lord, we pray that the dating relationships would honor you. Lord, that there would be men and women treating each other as brothers and sisters in all purity. Lord, that you would help help them discern your will for the future. We give that to you. Lord, we give just many people in this room desire a spouse. Lord, would you provide godly men and godly women for those that are desirous to get married and want to honor you. Lord, would you provide children for those who are desirous of children. Lord, at a time where our culture is marrying less, looking at kids as obligations rather than rewards from you, Lord, I pray you would help us to live counterculturally as families. To be a beacon of light of here's God's good design for men, for women, for the family. In this institution, Lord, we give that to you. We submit that to you. Have your way in our families, we pray. And Lord, we continue just to lift up our leaders. As as I preached last Sunday, Lord, we pray for our leaders that you would help them, that you would give them wisdom, that you would help them exercise righteousness and justice and things, Lord, that are on your heart versus things that are an abomination to you. We pray for them. We pray for their salvation if they don't know you. And Lord, this morning as we are gathered in your name, help us to be the church. Lord, this one institution that you promised the gates of hell will not prevail against. No other other institution has that promise. So Lord, help us to, to step into that and to feel both the gravity and the glory of being your church. Lord, I pray that what we seek most this season wouldn't be selfish ends, but your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, thank you for allowing us to gather like this today and address us by your word. Lord, I admit a genealogy can be a bit daunting. It can seem boring. Wow us this morning, Lord, with your glory. You inspired, you breathed out this word for our good. Lord, bring about that good in our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the opening of this genealogy in verse 1 is a very elevated opening. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the true heir of Abraham. He is the forever king who has come to sit on the throne of David. It is an elevated opening to this book and to this genealogy. But the rest of the genealogy is not so elevated. In fact, the details that are included are humble details. First off, for genealogies, it was rare to include women in a genealogy. All you have to do is compare this genealogy to the one in Luke chapter 3, which is the same for Jesus. There is not a single woman mentioned in that genealogy, and yet in this one, there are five women Compared to zero in Luke's genealogy, there is Tamar, 
Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And these women were not the only women that we are aware of. They're not even the five best-known women. Where is Sarah? Where is Rebecca and Leah? I mean, if we're going to include the women, let's include the women. But the five women included in in Jesus' genealogy remind us of tragic and low moments in the history of God's people. These women have in common that they were either outsiders, sinners, victims, or themselves under a cloud of suspicion. And by including them, Matthew is showing us and reminding us God overcame sin, He overcame death, He overcame distance, He did what seemed impossible in order to save. Which is great news. These women and this genealogy remind us that God's plan and the way He weaves things is a lot different than how we might plan and weave things. I mean, including these five women in a genealogy like this would be like having a resume where you've been fired five times and you just, you put, I was fired here, fired here, fired here, yep, fired here, and fired here. Nobody does that. And yet, these non-flattering details are included. See, oftentimes we want to minimize the bad parts. We want to put our our best picture on social media, not our worst. We want to hide the embarrassing parts. But Matthew does the opposite in this genealogy. Jesus' heritage shows us that he came into a line of sinners, even though he was himself without sin, and it shows us that he came to save sinners. So instead of hiding this heritage, it gets elevated for everyone to see. God sent His Son into this family, into this line. And these women are what Timothy Keller calls the five mothers of Jesus. And so the first one we meet is Tamar. Look at verse 3 again. It interrupts the flow of the genealogy each time a woman is mentioned. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now earlier this year, we did a series on the book of Genesis. I commend to you that message on Genesis 38 on Judah and Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite. She was not of God's people. And Judah had a son named Ur, and Ur took Tamar and married her. He should not have done that. But Ur was so wicked, the Lord put him to death. So the second, Judah's second son, Onan, was given, and he married Tamar. But the Lord put him to death as well. He used and abused Tamar, and the Lord ended his life. He was a wicked man. And in the aftermath of those two deaths, Ur dying, the Lord putting Ur to death, the Lord putting Onan to death, Judah, Tamar's father-in-law, treated Tamar as though she was the problem. 
He considered her as a bad luck bride. And even though he had another son and he would have given him to her, he didn't. He treated her as unmarriable. And in this pain, she dressed up like a prostitute. She put herself at the side of the road knowing that if she did, sex-crazed Judah would come by, and he did. And from that, Tamar conceived two sons, Perez and Zerah. Now, we know from the Bible, God hates sin. So what in the world was he doing choosing Judah and Tamar? We see, and we saw in Genesis, and we see over and over through the Bible, God uses what He hates to accomplish what He loves. He could have picked any family. He could have picked any of the 12 sons of uh, of Jacob, even Joseph, any heritage to send His Son into, and He chose this family and this line. And then he doesn't hide their history because these are the kinds of people Jesus came to save. Tamar was an outsider to God's people, and she wasn't just brought in to the family. No, she was given place of privilege in the line of the Messiah himself. Tamar is the first of the mothers of Jesus. And the second woman mentioned in the genealogy is in verse 5, it's Rahab. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now we meet Rahab in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. And like Tamar, she is a Canaanite. She's not an Israelite. But unlike Tamar, who appeared as a prostitute in a single instance, Rahab was a prostitute by profession. You know, back in the day, prostitutes were often linked to the temples of false gods and linked to false worship. So this is idolatry, and this is sexual immorality. But look what happened in Joshua chapter 2. We read these words. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So Rahab lies to the king of Jericho. She's a shady lady. 
But this shady lady goes on to confess the God of Israel. Joshua 2 goes on, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She confesses the Lord. Three times she uses the covenant name of God. You see it there in all caps, L-O-R-D. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. She says, He is God. And so when Jericho is destroyed, Rahab and her family are saved. She stakes her future. She stakes her family's future. She, she stakes the risk of lying to the king on the reality that there is a God and He is the true and living God. She recognizes Him very quickly as He's a God who destroys those opposed to Him, but He's a God who saves those who humbly submit to Him. Now get this, I I was just floored by this. Rahab didn't grow up going to church. It's not like she sat in a bunch of Bible studies in Jericho, like learning this over weeks and months and years. She didn't even own a Bible. And yet the little that she knew, that report that she had heard, was enough to convince her he is God. And I'm going to stake everything on Him being the true and living God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And God did not disappoint. He saved Rahab. He rescued her. When all other people in Jericho were destroyed, He brought her into the people of God. By faith, She was far off. She was brought near by faith. And not only that, she was brought into the line of the Messiah himself. The second woman mentioned here in this genealogy, Rahab, was the second of the mothers of Jesus. The third woman mentioned in Jesus' humble heritage is Ruth. Look at verse 5. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Just like the two women before her, Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. Deuteronomy 23.3 says, makes very clear her status, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Access denied. 
So how did she come into the family of God? Well, it was through questionable choices and sin, mainly that of Elimelech and Chilion. We read about this in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth opens telling us there was a famine in the land of Israel, specifically in Bethlehem. And there's this man, Elimelech. Elimelech's name means God is king. And yet when this famine comes, a famine was a time for people to turn to the Lord, to beseech the Lord, and he turns away from the Lord and he goes to Israel's enemy, Moab, looking for bread. So his name means God is my king, but he's not acting like God is his king. And so he seeks sanctuary in Moab, and he shouldn't have been there, but his son Chilion marries Ruth, a Moabitess, which he shouldn't have done. And then Chilion dies, and Ruth is a widow. She's in Moab, she's from Moab, she has every reason to stay in Moab, but instead she attaches herself to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And Naomi, it says, in so doing, she attaches herself to the people of Israel and she attaches herself to the God of Israel. In Ruth 1.16, it says, Ruth says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Now, this is not Ruth, you know, being like a a typical young person just trying to mooch off somebody who's older than her. This is Ruth recognizing, no, he is the true God. She recognizes where satisfaction is found. And so she comes into this family on account of her father-in-law's disobedience and her husband's sin, but it's she who is far off, who is brought near to God by faith. And what always amazes me about the account of Ruth is how many times Naomi tells her to go back. She's like, go back to Moab. Go back to your people. She actually says, go back to your gods. Which Naomi should know. There's only one true and living God. And despite what what I often call that reverse evangelism, despite the reverse evangelism of Naomi, she says, no, I'm going to come. I'm going to make your people my people, your God my God. And God grafts her in to his people and into the line of the Messiah. Ruth is the third of the mothers of Jesus. Do you see a trend? This is a humble heritage. The fourth woman who's mentioned in this humble heritage is Bathsheba. Bathsheba, except the genealogy doesn't call her Bathsheba. It refers to her instead as the wife of Uriah. Look at verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. 
So Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. He's often called Uriah the Hittite. Hittites were not Israelites. So Bathsheba is another, count them, number four now, non-Israelites in the line of the Messiah. Her husband had been co-opted for service in David's army. And the fact that Matthew doesn't mention her by her name, but rather highlights her as the wife of Uriah, is highlighting the adultery that took place. In 2 Samuel 11, David saw Bathsheba, he took her, he lay with her, and then he had her husband murdered. This is a low point in Israel's history and in David's life. But shockingly, it says in 2 Samuel 12 that the Lord put away David's sin. And I say shockingly because in the Old Covenant, there was no sacrifice that one could bring for adultery to be atoned for. There was only one penalty. It was death by stoning. David and Bathsheba deserve to be stoned to death. But look in the genealogy at what God did. He showed the mercy. The reason God was able to put away their sin, the reason He was able to include David and Bathsheba in the line of the forever king is because Jesus came to save people from their sins. This is what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Oh, church. Jesus came to live the life that we could not live. Jesus, in humility, died on the cross, dying as a substitute for our sin. Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. He lived. He died. He rose again. He's coming again. He did this to save people and bring us back to God. And so the very point of the history, the very point of this genealogy is here are the people that need saving. And here are the people, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come to save. It is good news that's proclaimed from this genealogy. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, those Who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And 1 Timothy 1.15 reminds us, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And as the hymn Our beloved, O Holy Night hymn puts it, Long lay the world in sin and air pining, till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. He has come! 
and he saves scoundrels, and he saves shady ladies. Christ does what we cannot do for ourselves in saving us. And so Bathsheba is the fourth mother of Jesus. The fifth and final woman mentioned is Jesus' direct mother, and it is Mary. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Mary is the only Israelite woman mentioned in this genealogy. She was likely a teenager, and being pregnant out of wedlock looked really bad. It looked bad for her. It looked bad for her and Joseph, which is why he almost divorces her. It actually continued to look bad because we read in John chapter 8 that one of the accusations made about Jesus by the religious leaders is that he was conceived in immorality. So this was something that kind of hung over him 30 years later. And yet we know from what the angel says to Mary that she is a highly favored one. She receives her role by faith. She endures the stigma and becomes the mother of the Messiah. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so genealogies that usually do not include women, this one includes five women. Not the tidiest five. Not the five with the cleanest history and the purest lives and the most stellar reputations, but five that show us this is why Jesus came to save and this is who Jesus came to save. He came to save the outcast, the stranger, the alien, the ones defiled by their own sin and the ones defiled by the sin of others. You know, some people do not come to Jesus out of the pride that they think, I don't need saving. But if we didn't need saving, if people could just save themselves, we wouldn't need, there wouldn't be anything to celebrate on Christmas. Christmas proclaims we needed saving. You see, if Ebenezer Scrooge could atone for his sins by just being generous, or if the Grinch could somehow get the garlic out of his soul. We wouldn't need Christmas. We wouldn't need a Savior. Christmas proclaims to us the humbling reality that this world, us, all of us, without exception, are doomed, are going to pay for our sins, are under the wrath of God despite Him saving us. And it's meant to humble us. Christmas is meant to humble us. Timothy Keller writes this, Consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts by their very nature make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper and you find it's another book from another friend, Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, 
thank you so much. You're in a sense admitting, for indeed I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. I think that's well said. It requires us to humble ourselves. It requires us to acknowledge, I needed Christmas. I needed the Son of God to come. I needed Him to save and to do what I could not do for myself. And so some people don't come to Jesus out of the pride that they don't need saving. When everything about Christmas proclaims to us, we do. But other people don't come to Jesus out of the pride that they think, I'm too far gone for God to save me. God couldn't possibly love me with this everlasting love. Well, there's many passages of Scripture that we could look at to convince us of this, that we're not too far off for Him to save us, that we're not too far off for His love, but we don't need to look further than this genealogy. Look at Judah and Tamar. Their God can be your God. Look with me at Rahab's confession. This shady lady stakes her future on the Lord. He is God. Look at Ruth. She switches peoples. She switches gods to make the Lord her own by faith. Look at David and Bathsheba. If if God can put away the sins of adultery and murder for David and Bathsheba, he could put away your sin. He could put away mine. And behold Mary. We, just, we sing the song, in a cattle stall they find a girl who holds the hope of all the world. When God shows that he can welcome sinners, he can welcome outcasts, and someone says, yeah, but he can't welcome me, I'll just be honest with you, that is foolish pride. It's a contradiction of why He's given us this in the first place. Yes, He can save us. And we have to humble ourselves to receive. Let us not be too proud to think, I don't need saving. And let us not be too proud to think, I'm too far off to be saved. Because everything in Scripture is given to convince us otherwise. If I can invite the worship team to return, please. Let me ask you, church, this Christmas, are you humbled by Jesus? Have you received Him? The bad news and the good news, there is no salvation apart from Him. And so let us not get caught up this Christmas with all the trappings of the sights and the smells and the schedules. Let us, this Christmas church, get caught up in the Son of God leaving His glory to come to save enemies like you and me. And if we're humbled, 
then let's glory in our humble Savior this Christmas. Glory in Him, imitate His humility, and oh, this is a message, good tidings of great joy for all peoples that is worth sharing with others this Christmas. He entered a lineage of sinners to save sinners. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, just watching Rahab be so affected by the little bit of truth that she knows. I pray, Lord, you would help us to be affected by the truth that we know about you. Lord, there's so much we don't know. There's so much more we could know. And yet, Lord, what you've shown us, help it to penetrate. Help it to humble us. And to bring forth worship and gratitude and mission. Help it to lead to greater sacrifice. Help it to lead to greater joy. Help it, Lord, to act as an antidote against all of the things that go on that are under the label Christmas, but have nothing to do with Christ. That, Lord, we would reserve our highest joy and our greatest allegiance for the King who has come, and we receive and glory in him together today in Jesus' name. Amen.